in the midst of such a confusing time, confusing time, everybody's confused, right? Such a confusing time. Um, there's two things that I know for sure. Uh, I don't want to share those things with you this morning. There's two things I know for sure. First thing is this, that there is a massive amount of need for ministry right now. There's a massive amount of need for ministry uh, in our world. So as you know, unless you've been living under a rock, we've been in a pandemic for a year and a half, right? Um, and this pandemic has led to epidemics of other things that are popping up in life. I spent some time this week researching some things and as I was doing that, I was kind of overwhelmed just by what I, what I saw. Um, because of the pandemic and because of other things, we've seen massive rise in, in other hard areas in life. <clears throat> Here's a few. One, depression and anxiety. Uh, among children, reports of depression and anxiety have doubled since the pandemic. Okay, so you can pretty much assume that, that, that uh, um, half of the kids that you know are, are um, more depressed, more anxious than they were prior to the pandemic. One survey found that adults reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression disorder went from 11% in 2019 to 41% in 2021. Uh, mental health and substance abuse, as, as of late June, or as of late June, 40% of adults and the U.S. reported to either struggling with mental health or substance abuse. So it's almost half of our nation is dealing with one of those two issues. Uh, drug overdose went up nearly 30% this year. 30%. Uh, suicide, there was 22.3% spike in ER trips for potential suicides by children aged 12 to 17. 22% increase in suicide in children compared to 2019, this according to CDC's morbidity and mortality report. And why is this happening? And what's, what's, what's the deal? Now, this isn't a sermon on, on trying to analyze culture or figure out why everything is so crazy right now. My point here is simply that there's a lot of opportunity to minister, but I, I do want to take a quick stab at a few reasons we're seeing all of this. Just a few things you want to jot them down. It's kind of a side note, but number one, we, we're in an epidemic of loneliness. Did you know that? We're in an epidemic of loneliness. Three out of five Americans say that they are lonely. How is that possible? I mean, we live in the most connected, relationally interconnected age that there's ever been. We have, we have more ability to connect with human beings in more ways than we've ever had before, yet uh, more than half of Americans say they're lonely. And it's true. I meet people all over the place, and, and, and I tell them about Philippi, and they go, man, I just need, I need that. I need community. I need friends. I need somebody. How is this possible? How are we lonely when we are so digitally connected? Well, I think it's because partly we've traded relationships, real relationships for what I'd like to call digital contractual narcissism. I like your photo, you like my photo, I comment on you, you comment on me, and that gives me this dopamine hit, this dopamine release that makes me feel like I'm in, in, in some kind of a real human relationship, but in reality, I'm not. Uh, an interesting cultural commentator the other day talking about how he's noticed that when some kind of an, a, a terrible event happens in the world, school shooting or, um, you know, some kind of a, a tragic event, um, people used to post about the event. How tragic, how sad. But he said he noticed now that particularly millennials and Gen Z, they're, they're posting now not about the event, but about how the event has traumatized them people that don't even live there, right? So there'll be, a, there'll be a, um, you know, an earthquake somewhere and someone will post, rather than how sad, I'm so broken for these people, it's I've been crying all day. 
I haven't even put pants on, just sweatpants, right? And then everyone posts, oh, I'm so sorry. And what are we doing in that moment? We're shifting the attention from the people that are actually suffering to ourselves. So social media in many ways has created this culture of just narcissism, digital narcissism, where we're constantly 24-7 able to stroke our own ego and, and build up our own sense of self. We're, we're, we're perpetually empty in a world of self-centeredness. And we're having our emotions and our attention pimped out 24 hours a day to whoever can get you to click on that. I mean, fear sells. Anxiety sells. New information sells, and people are trying to get this. So, so all of these different things, and again, there's a lot more things we could talk about, but all of these different things have culminated, and my point is simply this, that there is massive amounts of opportunity because people, listen to me, people are broken right now. If you're not seeing that, then I don't know who you're hanging out with. People are broken. People are fearful. They're more anxious than ever. They're more depressed than ever. They're more irritable than ever. They're more angry than ever. They're more lonely than ever. There's more narcotics of choice than ever. There's more ways to take the edge off of the bitterness of of what you're feeling than ever. And oftentimes we sit back and we say, well, I want to help people. And our mind goes to, well, maybe I can feed somebody. I would just suggest to you that that's maybe not the thing that our culture needs right now. Perhaps there's a different currency. So the first thing I know is there's a massive need for ministry. The second thing I know is that Christians have both the answer and the expectation to the ailments to, to minister to the ailments of ailments of our age. Let me say that again. Christians have both the answer and the expectation to minister to the ailments of our age. Christians, if you are a Christian, you have a built-in intrinsic calling to minister to the needs of your community, to the needs of the people in the church and with outside the church. Let me just give you a few passages. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Matthew 25, you're familiar with this passage, 25, 44. Uh, Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he answered them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. So Jesus there is, is, is saying, anytime that you minister to someone the least of these, the last, the least, the lost, you are ministering to me. Luke 3.10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. 1 John 3.17, but anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world, uh, not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So this leads to important questions. My my point is that the world needs ministry and that we are called to that ministry, amen? The world needs help and we are called to that help. But the question always comes back to what is it that the world needs? What is it the world needs? Because we live in this really peculiar and specific moment, cultural moment in the world where we actually have a pretty great social safety net where people can't really starve in our country unless they're really trying to where there's food stamps, where there's food programs, where there's housing available, where there's homeless shelters, there's all of these things. And so oftentimes we go, well, if I can't give, if giving someone a sandwich isn't gonna help, then what do I do? 
I would suggest to you that the currency that our culture needs right now is not primarily a physical thing, it is a spiritual thing. I would say that the thing that we need to minister to in our culture is not something uh, tangible as much as it is a spiritual reality. This morning I want to talk about ministry. I want to do a sermon on ministry. And, and you might be thinking, well, ministry, isn't that where you get paid? And, and the answer is no. Ministry is the call of every believer. Every believer has been conscripted into a ministry. Uh, the, you are uh, a kingdom of priests and priests minister. That's what we do. So you have a calling to this. And the question is, how do we minister who do we minister to? What does it look like to minister to hurt and broken, broken people? One of the things that we know about Jesus is when he walked this earth, he ministered to the broken. He cared for the broken. He gave himself out to the broken, to the needs, the particular needs of that time. We know that. We see that. So what can we learn from that? In this section of Mark that we're in right now, we're in Mark chapter 1, we're seeing Jesus heal. We're seeing Jesus minister to the needs of people, cast out demons, deal with leprosy, all of these different things. And the question is, what can we learn from Jesus in his ministry so that we might be able to do so better? Jesus came to minister to the hurting. It was one of the primary things that he did was he came to minister to the hurting, the, la- the last and the least and the lost. But he did so both specifically and intentionally. He did so liberally and intentionally. He did so generously and masterfully. Jesus, like a great physician, ministered to people in a very specific way. And what I want to do with you this morning is I just want to spend some time as we walk through this passage figuring out how it was that he ministered and how we can learn from that, what practical things we can learn from that. So our outline is really simple. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, we're going to see some ministry principles. In chapter or in uh, chapter one thirty five through thirty nine, we're going to see three ministry priorities, and then in forty through forty five, we're going to see ministry problems and how to overcome them. So ministry principles, ministry priorities, and ministry problems. Now let me back up. Let's get a running start here at this morning's passage. Let me explain a little bit of the context of what's going on in the book of Mark. We've just started, uh, so we're only we're not even through the first chapter yet. But essentially, this biblical section that we're looking at this morning. Mark is giving an account of what is considered the Galilean ministry, the ministry that Jesus did in Galilee. Now, when you think about Jesus' ministry, you can kind of think of it like a march towards Jerusalem. Jesus started on the outside and worked his way in. He started on the outskirts of the culture of Israel in um, Galilee and in Nazareth and in Samaria. And then over time, over his three-year ministry, he started making his way closer and closer to Jerusalem where he would ultimately meet his fate three years into his ministry. So here in this section of Mark we're looking at. Jesus is in his Galilean ministry. And what Mark has been doing so far in the the narrative is he has been validating the uh, authority and the position of Jesus by putting forth the evidence of his power and the way that he ministered. So we see Mark first making this bold claim in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Not that he is an anointed one, but that he is the anointed one, the one that Israel's been waiting for. So Mark puts forth this this, uh, assertion that Jesus is the Christ, and then he spends the next rest of this chapter giving proof. He gives the proof of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came and validated the work of the ministry of Jesus in verse 2 through 8. 
He gives the validation of Jesus' baptism. We looked at this a few weeks ago, and Jesus pops out of the water, and who's there? The Father himself breaking through the heavens, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, abiding on Jesus, and, and being the symbol that he truly was the one that we've been waiting for. We saw the validation of Jesus' perfection as he was tempted in the wilderness, and he, f- he did not fail He did what Adam couldn't do, proving that he was who he said he was. We saw the validation of Jesus' proclamation and that he taught with authority. We looked at this last week. He went into the synagogue and he didn't preach like I do with the authority of a scripture text. Jesus preached from his own authority. He said things as though he were the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And then we see Jesus validating his um, authority in the way that the demons feared him. Remember last week, the demons literally said, are you here to destroy us? Is it our time to go? Therefore, validating that the demonic realm, that this this spiritual element of of the world was aware of who Jesus was. Mark wants his audience to be aware as well of who this Jesus was. And then we see Jesus' authority over this demonic presence in verse 25 through 28 and that he casts out the demon. Now this is, I'm just getting a running start here at our text, but I want you to see how Mark is showing the validation of who Jesus is and what Jesus, through what Jesus did. And today we're gonna see the validation of Jesus' ability to heal. Jesus is gonna heal three times in our passage. First, he's gonna heal Peter's mother-in-law. Then he's gonna heal the entire sick list of Capernaum. And then he's going to heal a leper, which is astounding. And we're going to look at each of these through the lens of what does it look like to minister to broken people. Are you with me? You ready? Okay, open your Bibles. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to dive in here in verse 29. Now, first, we're going to look at some ministry principles. Verse 29 says, And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So if you remember last week, Jesus was ministering in the synagogue. Um, And the synagogue was the Jewish place of gathering. It was a place where they would gather on the Sabbath, open the scriptures, have dialogue, uh, very similar to what the New Testament Sunday morning gathering that we do right now is. Now, in Capernaum, and you can actually go to Capernaum. Have you guys ever been to Capernaum. If you go to Israel, you can go to Capernaum. I've been there, and you can see the synagogue that they walked out of. It's incredible. It's one of the few places in Israel that, that they know for sure this was the actual site. So you can go into the synagogue, and you can walk out of the synagogue just like Jesus would have in this moment, and you can see Peter's house, literally like 100 feet away. Capernaum wasn't a big, bustling city. It was a smaller town, uh, and Peter's house was literally about 100 feet, maybe 100 yards from the synagogue. And then about 100 yards from that, you can picture the Sea of Galilee. Don't picture a sea, because it's not a sea. It's a lake. It's a big lake. Okay, that's kind of what, and it really looks like, if you've ever been down to Siskiyou County, it looks like Siskiyou County. That's what Israel looks like. It's kind of high desert, uh, kind of a place, not a ton of trees, a lot of, a lot of grass, a lot of weeds, things like that, a lot of rocks. That's kind of what Israel looks like. So, so they come out of the synagogue and they go to Peter's house. Now, there's a, a common misconception about Peter, and that is that he was like this really poor guy. He really wasn't. He wasn't filthy rich, but he was a middle-class guy. 
he, he had a house that was not large by our standards, but by the day it was decent size. Um, like I said, you can literally go to Israel and stand on top of Peter's house. They built a big glass-floored Catholic church right over the top. That's what they do in Israel. They build things over the top of everything. I don't know why. So you can literally see it. It's about the size of your living room. Um, and in this dwelling, there would have been an outer courtyard and a flat roof. Remember that next week when, when we look at uh, them lowering the paralytic through the roof. Okay, and Peter, uh, he was the patriarchal figure in his family. We don't know what happened to his father, but the fishing business had somehow passed to him and his brother, uh, Andrew. And so Simon and Andrew moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum, probably to establish the, the fishing business that they had. And fishing was a decent job. They probably made a decent wage. Uh, and their house was big enough for both Simon and Andrew and Peter, Simon Peter's wife and Simon Peter's mother-in-law and for a time, Jesus, to all dwell there. So it was a decent size house, all under the same roof. Verse 30. So Simon, uh, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Now back then, I don't think they really knew that fevers were actually symptomatic. I think they thought the fever was the sickness. Okay, so keep that in mind. She's sick with a fever. Uh, she has some kind of an infection. She's some kind of a, yeah, something that's causing a fever. And immediately they told him about her and, she, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And note this, she began to serve him. Now why does Mark add that? He heals her and she begins to serve him. Um, because Mark is trying to show us, the reader, that this is a total healing. You ever had a fever, like a really bad fever? Um, when the fever goes away, you don't feel like getting up and serving anybody, right? I mean, you, you, it knocks you down for, for, for sometimes a week, right? The fact here is that when Jesus heals, Jesus heals in totality. He doesn't heal partially. He's healed her completely in a creative sense. He's given her all of her energy back, and the first thing she does is pop up and go get food, she, she begins to, to, to care for each other. So it's not, it's not some kind of a, uh, a misogynistic note that she's serving them. It's that, look at this healing. It's complete. She's got energy. She's ready to serve. Now, I just want to point out a couple things here about this particular miracle. This is a very personal miracle, isn't it? A lot of the miracles that we have that Jesus does, they're random people out in the crowd, random people that come along. This is not a random person. This is Peter's mother-in-law. It's a very personal Healing, And it's actually one of the first healings, not the first, but one of the first healings that Jesus does. Why is that? And why, why did Jesus stop to, to do this? Now, you've got to put yourself in these guys' shoes here for a minute. Uh, you imagine that you're Peter. Imagine, imagine that you're Andrew. Uh, Peter more in particular here. And Jesus has called you to apprentice him, which means that, that you, you're setting your business aside and now you're full-time following, working for, if you will, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so your focus is there and they're in the synagogue and they're trying, to, uh, they're, they're, they're trying to be available to Jesus for whatever is needed, but simultaneously your wife's mother is very ill. People died from fevers back then. These guys are stressed, Okay, you can imagine that Peter, while he's in the synagogue and he's watching Jesus interact with this, uh, this demon-possessed person like we looked at last week, in the back of Peter's mind, he's thinking, oh, what if I lose my mother-in-law? It's gonna be devastating. It would have been running in the back of his mind. And do you think that Jesus is not aware of that? Do you think he doesn't notice that? As soon as they go to the house of Peter and they inform Jesus about the reality of Peter's mother-in-law, he instantly goes over and he heals his mother-in-law. 
Now, what a kindness. I just want to draw out one point here, and that is that the kindness of Christ to care about the things that we, are care, that we care about. I'll put it this way. Uh, Jesus may have his eye on the nations, but he has his hand in your home. I love this, that the author notes this, that before Jesus goes off to heal the nations, before Jesus goes off to really, before his ministry really explodes onto the public uh, sphere, he takes the time to attend to the needs of his followers. His kindness is that he works in those closest to us. And it's here that we arrive at our first ministry principle. Are you ready? Our first ministry principle, number one, is that God is interested in ministering from the inside out. See, we think about how God works. We think about the nations. We think about the big things. We think about how God wants to use us in our life. We think about, God, you're gonna use me out there someday with somebody. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna use you in your home. I wanna work through you in the place where you already are. I wanna minister to the people that are closest to you. I wanna start on the inside and work my way out. You know, there's a pattern of that in the Bible, in the New Testament. Jesus started with 12, and he ministered exclusive, almost exclusively to those 12 in a way that was very unique. And then even within that, it was three. And then when Jesus died and rose, um, then it started to grow and expand. In the book of Acts, it started very small. It was a group in Jerusalem, but then it grew out from there. So where do I start in ministry is the question I'm trying to answer here. Where do I start? Start in your home. Start in your home and start, start with the people that are already in your life. You know, we think about who to minister to. We think of the idea of people. Maybe there's somebody out there someday I could witness to. Maybe there's somebody out there someday I could help. Uh, no, that's not the person God's calling you to witness to. God's calling you to the person, witness the person that you already know, and I know that's more awkward, right? Your spouse, your kids, your mother, your mother-in-law, your coworkers, your friends, the people that you already have influence in your life. That's where Jesus wants you to start. One of the most, I think it's one of the most common excuses that we use to avoid stepping into the ministry God has for us is to say, well, I just don't know who God wants me to minister. I'm waiting for them to come along. I'd like to disciple somebody, but I don't know who it is. I'm waiting for someone to call me and say, well, disciple me. No. Start with your kids. Start with your spouse. Start with your friends. Minister to who is around you. So that's ministry principle number one. God is interested in ministering from the inside out. Now look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Okay, so I want you to step into this again, into this narrative for a moment. I want you to think about this. This picture, uh, we think about it and we think, oh, how beautiful, how sweet. There's a line of people patiently, graciously waiting for their moment with Jesus. Like we picture a shopping mall with Santa Claus sitting there and there's this nice organized line with all of Santa's little helpers making sure everything's working. And this nice line is just waiting for their three minutes with Santa Claus. Okay, that's not what this moment would look like. Capernaum just rolled out their entire sick list, all the people that have issues. And these aren't just physically sick people. These are demonically oppressed people. These are the people that you try to avoid. The stench would be unreal. The crowd would be crazy because you don't just have people waiting to get healed. You have people waiting to see something happen. Bored, small-town people that want to see what is going on. This is crazy. Jesus has a small staff. He's got 12 guys. 
In fact, at this point, I don't even know if he had 12 yet. He's got a small staff, and these guys are trying probably frantically to organize the chaos of what it would look like for all of Capernaum's sick list to be present. And you better believe people aren't graciously waiting in a nice line to have their moment with Jesus. People are pressing in. They're afraid of missing out. What if he ends for the day? What if he goes away before I get my healing? My point is here that this would be messy. This would be, this would be a, a really stressful, this isn't like a doctor's waiting room with some nice music going and they call your name while you're filling out paperwork and watching Oprah, okay? This is like outside Peter's house, it's chaos. And I want you to notice what time it is. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick. And we know why, it's because it was Sabbath, can't heal on the Sabbath, so after Sabbath is over, concludes in the evening, they all start to submerge onto Peter's little house, and they all are ready to see if maybe Jesus could do a miracle for them. Now, that's great for them. Who cares if it's nighttime? If I get healed, great. But what about Jesus? He just had a full day, and all of these people are coming when it's bedtime. It's not convenient. It's not convenient for him. It's not convenient for the disciples. And my, my point here, my, my ministry principle number two, I want you to jot down, it's just simply that ministry comes when it comes. It comes when it comes, and when it comes, it's never controllable. We think about helping people, we think about ministering to people, we have this idea that, you know what, when I get that, that text and, and someone is asking me for help, it's just gonna be Saturday at 10 o'clock when I got nothing going on. No, it's not. It's not gonna be that time. You know, maybe, maybe it'll be the, the day that I'm just feeling really spiritual. I got lots of wisdom and I just finished, you know, reading my Bible and I close it and boom, I get a call. Hey, could you come pray for me? Oh yeah, sure, brother. No, that's not ministry. That's a daydream. Ministry is when you just sit down with your family, you're exhausted, you've worked all day, you feel like you're totally guilt-ridden with your own sin and your own failure, you're not even believing the gospel for yourself, you sit down for dinner and your best friend shoots you a text and says, my wife's leaving me, she's had an affair on me, can you please come and try to help us? Can, I, can we come to your house tonight? Can you do something? to which you respond, let me connect you with my pastor. No, you pick up the phone and you step into the situation, right? Because that's what happens, that's what ministry looks like. It's never convenient, it's never the right time, and it's never uh, controllable, it's messy. Let me give you an example. I have a million of these in my life where uh, ministry came at a time I was not ready for it. When I was 19, I was ministering to kids in the juvenile hall down in Siskiyou County. And God was showing some favor. And these are, these are rough kids, right? I mean, they, these, are, these are the kids that are they're smoking weed, they're doing meth, they're getting in fights. Some of them were locked up for armed robbery. Uh, there's some gnarly stuff, okay? And, and so we're ministering to these kids. A couple of them were starting to really follow after Jesus. It was a, really an amazing thing. And, and so one of them texted me. Again, I'm a 19-year-old. I got a little tiny car, a little tiny Mercury Tracer in 1997 uh, named Daphne, right? Because you got to name your first car. And, and one of these kids texts me. He's like, hey, I want to get baptized. I'm like, sweet, awesome. Meet, you know, he's like, can I bring a friend? I'm like, sure. So I was like, meet me in the front of uh, Priceless Foods, or a grocery store, at, uh, at 4 o'clock, and we'll drive up to Applegate, and they do baptisms on Saturday nights. So we'll get baptized. 
great, sounds good. So I show up, and in my head, I'm like, I'm prepared for these two kids uh, to get in my car for to drive up, right? I show up to the grocery store, and there's 30 other kids. And there's not, these aren't church kids. These aren't youth group kids. Like, these are kids, most of them had, you know, ankle monitors on or whatever. It's like, oh, and they're like, we all want to come too. And I'm like, okay. So I'm on my phone. I'm like frantically texting all the people, that, all the adults that I know that have big cars. And I'm like, hey, could you drive a bunch of hoodlums up to, you know, Applegate to get baptized? Like, could you do that? Would you be able, uh, okay, okay, you know? So we wrestle together three cars and we load up all these kids. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, like this is crazy. And I got literally five kids in my car. We're going over the pass. And one of the kids, I'll never forget this kid named Ryan. He's like, don't get pulled over, bro. I'm like, why? He's like, we ain't supposed to leave the state. He's like, I'm not supposed to leave Oregon. I'm on, like, I'm probation. I'm like, you're not supposed to leave the state? Are you kidding me? Like, are you insane? Um, okay, you know, so, so I drove really carefully, you know, and so we get up there, and it's just, just cra- I mean, like 15 of these kids ended up getting dunked. It was incredible. And then we go to, uh, we go to Sherry's afterwards for dinner, you know, and, and they all ordered these big meals. I'm thinking, no, they got money. <laughs> no. I got like a $200 check. I'm like, okay, a credit card, you know, it is what it is. Okay, here's my point. Ministry's messy. It's never going to be what you think it's going to be. And if you're waiting for it to be something, you're just never going to help. Ministry's messy. Ministry is never going to come at the right time. It's never going to come in a particular way, the way that you're expecting or wanting for it to come. Jesus is ministering in the chaos, But the good news is for the disciples is even though it's chaotic, uh, Jesus is there. And then when Jesus is there, it's okay. So you feel over your head, good. That means the Spirit of God can actually use you. You feel like you don't have enough strength to minister. That's when God is really going to be able to supernaturally use your weakness for his glory. So that's our ministry principles. Now let's look at ministry priorities. We're going to see three ministry priorities that Jesus models for us here. The first one is in verse 35. In rising, note the words, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I want you to remember something here. Jesus has been up all night. He's been up all night. This isn't like I went to bed at 8 o'clock, and my alarm went off at 5, and I had coffee pre-programmed so that when I got up, my coffee was ready for me and my nice warm couch and a blanket. Jesus has been up ministering all night. He's exhausted. Jesus was God. He was also fully man. He's, he's physically exhausted. He's spiritually exhausted. I don't even know. It doesn't even, I'm not even sure if he got sleep that night. Maybe he got an hour. But regardless, he wakes up before the sun to go out to the wilderness to pray. I don't know about you guys. If there was ever a time for a gimme on sleeping in, I think that would be it, Right? I was up ministering till three in the morning. I'm sleeping in. I can pray when I wake up. That's not what Jesus does. Okay, and I don't think that the way we're supposed to read that is like, well, he's so spiritual. I mean, he's Jesus. (laughs) I think the way we're supposed to read that is Jesus was aware of his human needs. Jesus was aware of the depletion that comes when you pour yourself out spiritually. He was aware of the fact that if he did not go refill, he would not be able to continue to minister. Some years ago, I did a, a marathon, and I learned about this thing called hitting the wall. Have you ever heard of this? Hitting the wall. Everybody told me, hey, you're going to hit the wall. I'm like, what's the wall? 
So I'd only ever run up to 20 miles, and a marathon's 26 miles. And I thought, well, the 20 wasn't so bad. So those extra six, how hard could they be? Just six more, right? So I was kind of cocky, you know? I, I, I had a big steak dinner the night before, which is the worst thing you could possibly eat. And then I slept in the next morning. Uh, I didn't get up early. I didn't eat breakfast, guys. I didn't eat breakfast. I had a banana and coffee. Now, I hit the wall hard at like mile 16, and it was hellish from that point forward. Um, I had heard about nutrition and the importance of eating as you run because there's this thing called physical depletion. It's, it's not just like, I'm tired. I can't run anymore. It's like your body starts shutting down. You start cramping. You can barely take another step. I didn't know about all that. It wasn't really reality to me. Okay? Had I known, I would have eaten breakfast. I would have been eating those little goo packets along the way, all those kinds of things. But I didn't because I was stupid. Jesus is not stupid. Jesus is spiritually depleted. He doesn't want to bonk. He doesn't want to hit the wall. He doesn't want to run out. He knows if he doesn't go get reconnected to the Father, he's not going to be any good to anybody. And the reality is, is that we oftentimes, we try to minister physically or we try to minister spiritually and refill physically. We try to minister spiritually and then we try to refill physically. Spiritual ministry means spiritual depletion, which calls for spiritual nutrition. If you're ministering, then you need to be refilled. If you're living as a sinful human in a sinful, broken world trying to follow Jesus, you need to be refilled. I want you to notice three things Jesus does in the way that he prioritizes the soul. And if you're a note taker, by the way, ministry priority number one, priority of the soul. The priority of the soul. What does Jesus do? How does he prioritize the soul? Notice three things. Firstly, isolation. Isolation. Jesus finds a place to get alone. He finds a place to get alone. He finds a wilderness place. Why does he do that? Because he needs to focus exclusively on the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, I would suggest to you we live in the day and age that is probably the hardest in history to find isolation. Because your stupid phone is always three inches from your hand. And your muscle memory is trained to pick that thing up. This isn't in my notes, but the other day I did an experiment. I'm like, I'm not going to get on my phone for four hours. Crazy, right? I'm not going to check for texts. I'm going to sit here. So I turned my phone off. I set it over there, and I had a little notepad next to me. And I said, every time I get the urge to pick up my phone, I'm going to tally. I had like 20 tallies. It was embarrassing. I think I took a picture of it with my phone. And you know what's funny is I kept having the urge to text my wife and be like, babe, this is so funny. I'm tallying how many times. And I'm like, I'd have to pick up my phone to do that. Oh, that's another tally. Oh. I mean, it was crazy. Like, we just do not have the ability anymore to be isolated. We just don't. Jesus saw this isolation as so important. And let me ask you, do you have a desert place every day? And I don't mean some serene, beautiful cabin up in the wilderness that you can go to. If you have that, let me know. I'd like to use it. I mean, do you have a moment in your day or moments in your day where you literally just remove yourself from everything, especially your phone, and you interact with the God of the universe? If you don't, I would suggest that you're not going to be much help to anybody spiritually. So Jesus, he looks for isolation. He also looks for desperation. Jesus isn't just there navel-gazing in the wilderness. He's praying. 
He's engaging with the Father. He's petitioning his concerns before God. He's praying. He's actively talking. It's not just about silence and solitude. We're not monks. It's not about emptying ourselves. This is about getting alone and engaging with the God of the universe, letting your heart be bare before him, investigating your soul with him, filling your soul with him, drinking of the living water that he has to give you. That's what Jesus is doing here. So isolation, desperation, and thirdly, calibration. Jesus isn't just out there to pray. He's out there to think with God's help, with clarity about how he's supposed to continue to do this ministry. And that's why in a moment when Simon Peter comes running up to him and says, everyone's looking for you, Jesus knows exactly what to say. So let's look at that. Verse 36. And Simon, Peter, those who were with him, they get up. You can imagine they get up in the morning and Jesus isn't there. I think that happened a lot. I think that was pretty normal. Simon, those who were with him, they searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all, out, throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I love this. This is like the moment that every human longs for in their soul. Everybody wants you. You're the man. You did it. You're viral. Everybody wants to follow you. Everybody wants a piece of what you have. Your, your Capernaum is buzzing. Everyone's looking for you. Isn't that great? And, and Peter's like, we did it. This was our job, right? Peter's like his press guy, right? He's like, we did it. We have a following. And Jesus looks at him and goes, time to go. What? Time to go? Everyone wants, don't you understand? Everybody wants you. Everybody wants something from you. Isn't that what you wanted? No. It's not what I wanted. Jesus knew in that moment that it was time to go. He knew because he had been in isolation with the Father. He'd been in prayer with the Father. He had this clarity about what his ministry truly was and what it wasn't. So ministry priority number two, are you ready? The priority of God's calling. Listen, the priority of God's calling over people's needing. The priority of God's calling over people's needing. If you minister only according to need, you will die. You have to minister according to calling because there will never, until the kingdom come, there will never be an end to the need. Jesus understood this. He understood that he had to minister within his limitations. God is not interested in your busyness. He's interested in your obedience. He's not interested in, you know, what, what we do when we feel guilty about, maybe I should be doing more for the Lord. We just get frantic and, and do a lot of moving. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants obedience. He says, do what I've asked you to do. Do what I've asked you to do. Populism makes a terrible master. You start helping people, people are going to start asking you to help them, and that's good. But at some point, you're going to have to say, what am I called to do, and what am I not called to do? And do I trust God enough to simply do what I'm called to do and let him take care of the rest? Jesus had a very clear understanding of that. We cannot minister only according to need. We must minister according to calling. Now, how do we know what that calling is? You might be saying, okay, Sam, that's great. Well, how do I know who to say no to? How do I know which text to respond and say, yeah, sorry, I can't do that? How do I know? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus had a clear idea and that his clear idea actually applies to us. Look at what Jesus said verse 38. He, says, he said to them, let us go unto the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. To what? To heal everybody? Is that why he came? To fix everyone's problems? Is that why Jesus came? Why did Jesus come? Why did he come the first time? 
came to preach. He came to preach. Did he heal people? Yes. Did he cast out demons? Yes. So that he could validate the message. That's the primary function of the miraculous that Jesus did. It was to validate the message, and of course it was to foreshadow the coming kingdom. But preaching was the ultimate goal. You say, Sam, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. If you're a Christian, your primary goal, your primary task is not, listen to me, it's not to fix everybody. It's not to fix everything. It's to preach the gospel. Because the gospel is what people need. They don't need you to try to fix all their problems. They need the gospel. They need to be reminded of the realities that Jesus is sovereign has conquered all on the cross, that their sin can be forgiven, that regeneration is possible. They can be born again in the spirit. You know, Christians need the gospel too. The act of maturing as a Christian is the act of believing the gospel to a greater degree. Jesus understood that his ministry, his first advent, which you and I in many ways mimic, uh, was not about fixing everything. That's his second coming. There is coming a time where he will fix everything. Right now, This dispensation, this season of time that we live in, we are preachers of the gospel. We are preachers of the reality of what Jesus has accomplished, is accomplishing, will accomplish. That's our job. So here's what happens, you know. People come to us and and they say, hey, I got this problem. You know, my boss is a jerk or, uh, you know, my wife doesn't like me or, or whatever. And we, and we try to give them practical advice. It's what we do as humans. We just feel like, well, have you thought, have you thought about this? I watched, I was watching Dr. Phil the other day and, and he said that if you do this, you know, whatever. Or, or I was on Twitter, you know, and, and my favorite Twitter person said, you can tell I'm not on Twitter. I don't even know how to talk about Twitter. Um, whatever it is. Someone tweeted something, you know. Uh, whatever it is. And, and, and the reality is these things pull us away from the gospel. Well, just do this. Try doing that. Try doing this. And what they really need is they need to be directly taken to Christ. They need to be reminded of the finished work of what Jesus has done. That's what ministry looks like. That's what people need. That's what the priority of it should be. This is the flaw of what has been called the social gospel, and that is that as Christians, our primary job is to fix the world. That's not true. Have fun with that. Our primary job is to preach the gospel and make disciples. Don't believe me? Read the Bible. That's what Jesus said. He said, go make disciples. What does that mean? It means that we declare the kingdom, we bring people into that kingdom, and we start to teach them to do all that Jesus spoke. That's our mission. It doesn't mean we don't care about the world. It doesn't mean we don't care about practical needs. But our primary ministry as Christians is to drive people to the gospel, to the finished work of Christ, to the forgiveness that is available at the cross. That's our job. So when your friend texts you at dinner and says, 911, my wife's leaving. I don't know what to do. What do you do in that moment? You remind them of the gospel and say, don't forget God is sovereign. Jesus died for your broken marriage. There is victory in Christ regardless of what your wife does. Cling to Jesus. Don't give him false hope. Don't say, well, maybe if you do this, you can fix your marriage. He may not be able to. Don't give him false hope. Give him true hope. Remind him of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's your job. You can't fix the situation. You're not a counselor. We minister by directing people to the victory of Christ. That's what we do. And oftentimes our advice drives people away from Christ rather than to Christ. So, ministry priorities. Now let's look at ministry problems and we'll close. 
Ministry problems, they come up. How do we address them? Verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, before we move on, I need to, I need to explain to you what this leprosy thing is about because it really, it, it shows just how powerful this moment is. Um, a leper was the filth, the social filth of the Jewish culture. Uh, there's really, there's really kind of three facets to what it would have been like to be a leper. The first one is the physical facet. Um, you had something that we know now is called Hansen's disease. Um, Hansen's disease, also known as leprosy, uh, is an infection caused by slow-growing bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. It can affect the nerves, skin, eyes, lining of the nose. Here's what happens. Your nervous system begins to break down. Um, your skin starts to rebel. But what happens is you can't feel anything, anything anymore. Because you can't feel anything anymore, you hurt yourself and don't know. So to be a leper um, would have been someone that would have been missing limbs, most likely, all kinds of skin abrasions, all kinds of, uh, of wounds, open sores that were not healing. They didn't have antibiotics back then. Um, you know, there wasn't just a, a walk-in clinic. You could go get bandaged up. These guys were left really to themselves to just hopefully heal when they would have something like this happen. So there's a, a physical component to leprosy, but there's also a social component to leprosy. To be a leper meant that you were forced to live outside of the town, uh, away from your family, unable to touch anyone physically. You were forced to tear your clothes uh, in order to make a physical appearance so that people would know that you were a leper. Can you imagine that? You were uh, forced to shout your presence in advance because you were not allowed to get more than 100 feet from someone. So you can't just go in the grocery store, right? You can't just go into town, and if you do, you have to make your presence very known. You're considered the filth, the refuse of culture. Rabbis, we have uh, historical writings of rabbis priding themselves not only on taking an extra large birth from, uh, you know, from, from lepers, but throwing rocks at them as a sign of piety and religious holiness. This is how bad it had gotten in, in, in Israel. So there's a social component. There's also a religious component. See, they were deemed religiously unclean. Notice that the leper comes to Jesus and his request isn't fix my ailment, it's make me clean. I'm unclean. He was cut off from worship, unable to go to the temple, unable to feel the, the, um, the peace of knowing that his sin has been atoned for through sacrifice, unable to be ministered to by the priesthood. He was thought to have sinned or to have been under some sort of judgment. This was the reality of this leper. So that's why Mark, I think, takes a moment, rather than letting this leper just be one of the crowd being healed, he takes a moment to double-click on this moment with his leper and say, this is worth taking a minute to think about, to consider. Now, what can we learn here about this regarding ministry? Let's look at it. So a leper, verse 40, came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, note that, he stretched out his hand and touched him, scandalous, said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Okay, here's my point. Ministry is really messy. And ministering by definition is touching things other people don't want to touch. 
helping people other people don't want to help. Dealing with situations that other people don't really want to deal with. That's the definition of ministry. It gets messy. The question is, you might be asking is, okay, so ministry is messy. How do I get over the fact that I don't want to touch things like that? Because Jesus touches this guy. He interacts with him. He just he goes right into it, walks right up to him, does what no one else in that culture would have done. Jesus goes right up to it, engages in the mess. And the question for us should be, how do I do that? Because when I get that text, when I get that call, when I see that thing happening, I go, I want to run the other way. How do I change that? Let me suggest a few things to you from the passage. First of all, before Jesus touched the leper, Jesus was touched by the leper. Before Jesus touched the leper, Jesus was touched by the leper. You notice it says he was moved with pity. Before he touches the leper, he is moved with pity. You say, that's great, Sam, but I'm not moved with pity. I'm not moved with pity. I don't have that deep affection to help broken and messy people. I agree with you. Neither do I. So what do we do? I would suggest to you this. Jesus does. The Christian life is not living out of your own righteous affections. It's Christ's righteous affections living through us. See, Jesus loves the messy more than you ever will or ever can. The goal of the Christian is not to have the perfect feelings or perfect affection toward broken people. It's to be a conduit for Christ's perfect love to come through you and for his perfect love to be formed in you. Your job is to abide, that the perfect compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ would pass through you. The second thing I would point out is not only that Jesus was touched by the leper, but then Jesus touched the leper. Jesus touched the leper. He stretched out his hand and touched him. And here's the reality. Things will always seem too messy for you to get into until you touch them, until you start getting your hands in it. Once you start getting your hands in it, you know what happens? People become humans. And when people become humans, you start to treat them differently. This is a very basic historical fact that if people wanted to continue in slavery or if they wanted to exterminate, exterminate, let's say, a million Jews, the way that you do that is to dehumanize those people so that you can't do whatever you want to them. So slavery was able to be done because they, in many ways, had dehumanized. They had, they had divorced, um, you know, people, African-American people from the uh, identity of the Imago Dei. And then Hitler successfully removed Jews as being really fully human. Same thing's happening with abortion. They're not babies. It's my body. It's a fetus. It's my, no, it's not your body. It's a human <laughs> right? It's a human. And you have to see that it's a human. And if you don't want to see it, it's because you know it's wrong. It's a human being. You have to touch the mess to realize that it's a human. Let me give you an example. My wife and I decided we were going to do foster care some while, you know, about a, a year ago. And so we did the training and we're all excited and we're like, we're going to try to get a baby or a little kid and we're anticipating this call and we wait like two weeks, three weeks and we're starting to wonder, are we ever going to get a call? Finally, we get a call. I just always remember. I'm in the drive-thru of Rogue Roasters. We're waiting, trying to decide what we're going to get. My wife gets a call from DHS. Hey, Randy, uh, look, we got a case for you guys, but it's okay if you don't want to take it. It's pretty messy. I'm like, okay. What's going on? Well, it's a baby. We're like, sweet. Love babies. Two months old. Oh, baby boy. Oh. Here's the thing. He's got like 12 broken, broken bones. He's got broken ribs. He's got a broken femur. This kid was abused badly. He's at the hospital. He's going to need a high level of care. 
And we're just like, oh, can we do that? Can we do that? So we're like, well, can we think about it for a minute? Yeah, sure. And it didn't take more than 20 seconds. We're like, yes, yes, we're going to do that, right? We're going to take this kid, right? But here's the thing, like, when we first got that call, it was like this idea of some kid. And I'm like, gosh, that sounds crazy. What if he's in a cast? How do I know how to hold him? What if he needs 24-hour care? What if we can't do this? What if this is too messy? And then we pack a bag, we drive to the hospital, and we go in and we pick up this kid, and it doesn't, none of that matters. None of it matters because he's a baby. And he was our little baby for six months. And we'll never forget our time with him. See what happened in that moment? When your hands touch that child, it becomes a person. And what Jesus does in this moment is he lets, he, he, he breaks it out from being the idea of the messiness of leprosy, the thing everyone wanted to distance themselves from, and he touches it. He touches him. And when he does so, that person becomes a person. So I would encourage you, you know, ministry might sound like the moon. How do I help messy situations? Start by touching the situation. Get your hands in. Get your hands into it. Get hands on and your heart will start to follow. I love that about Christ. He didn't heal him from a distance. He got into it. So ministry problem, number one, it's messy, but the answer to that is what we just discussed. Now, one more thing, one more ministry problem. Look at verse, 40, verse 43, and then we'll end. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Why did Jesus ask this guy not to tell anybody? Because what happened was exactly what Jesus knew would happen. This guy disobeys Jesus. He goes and runs his mouth about what happened. And now Jesus has so many people after him, he has to live out in desolate places. He can't be in town where the food is, where the resources are. He has to literally live out in the desert because this guy disobeys. There's just a quick point on this and I'll close. Okay, ministry problem number two. Listen, ministry never turns out the way you want. It always seems to, something ends up happening where you start to question, well, was I supposed to do that? Jesus did the right thing and got the wrong outcome. He healed this guy, and because he healed this guy, now he's got to live out in the North 40. Now he's got to live out in the wilderness. Now he can't come into town. How frustrating that is. Now let me just make a quick point here. I used to assume that I knew if something was what God asked me to do based on the outcome. If it went well, God calls you to go tell someone about Jesus and you go over there and, and, and it goes terribly and you're like, well, I'm, I guess I wasn't listening. You know, no, that's, that's not how it works. Don't sort your life decisions based on whether things work out the way you thought they would work out because ministry never does. It never works out the way that you think it's gonna. It works out exactly the way that God wants it to in his sovereignty. Our obedience needs to be connected to, uh, or our joy needs to be connected to our obedience rather than the results. If your joy is connected to the results, you'll question everything. So when we step back and we look at this whole text, see what is Mark driving at here? Just two simple things. This passage in totality is a foreshadow of the kingdom reality. Okay, the foreshadow, what I want you to remember right now is that what we're seeing here is the future breaking into the present. You see, there's coming a time where there will be no sickness, there will be no disease, there will be no hurt, there will be no pain, there will be no leprosy, there will be no anxiety, there will be no depression, there will be no overdose, there will be no physical ailment. 
And what is happening here is Jesus is previewing that future reality because wherever Jesus is, his kingdom is. And wherever his kingdom is, there is no more brokenness. And this is why when we look at a world that is specifically broken in specific ways right now, particularly in this pandemic that we're in, we need to remember that we have the answer. We have the answer. The answer is the gospel. The answer is that Jesus brings ultimate healing. So this passage is a foreshadow of a kingdom reality. This passage is also a prototype for kingdom ministry. So just like Jesus went into these messy, these messy situations with the kingdom proclamation, we are to do the same thing. We are to look at passages like this and see how did Jesus minister? How can I learn? Our job is to be a conduit for the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this kingdom, which is going to end. Praise God. And will be replaced and absorbed, overtaken by Jesus' kingdom, his perfect kingdom rule. He is the good king, and he brings goodness in his rule and reign. And you, Christian, have the resources that a depressed and lonely and broken and hurting world needs. You have it. You have the gospel and you have the community that comes with it. Invite people here. Tell them the gospel. Assume the person pumping your gas needs something. They do. They need the gospel. Assume they don't have community. They don't. They may have a 1,000 followers on Instagram. That doesn't mean they have friends. They need gospel community. They need to be born again and absorbed into the gospel community of the kingdom of God, which is what is happening right here. They need it. Ask yourself, who's around me? Who's hurting? What would it look like to preach the gospel to these people? Who has is, who is Christ called me to minister to this week? Not the idea of ministry, but where do I start? Start with who's around you and remind them of these true realities. Amen? I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna have some discussion time. Father, thank you so much for sending your son into a broken world full of broken people like us. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't stand from a distance and heal us. You entered into our story and you touched the, the messiness of our lives, that you humanized us. And Lord, we just pray that as we drive through Grant's Pass, as we do life in Grant's Pass, and we see the mess that we would remember these are your people. And Lord, that we would remember that you're calling and drawing them to your kingdom, and that we would preach the gospel to them. This is your creation. You are the king of it. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.